1: Hello and welcome to In Social Work. This is Luanne Back, and I'll be your host for this episode. The use of technology continues to increase within the field of social work and has had a considerable influence on micro, meso, and macro level practice. There is a much greater reliance on digital and electronic options to deliver service through venues such as telephonic counseling, email, text messaging, video conferencing, as well as several other modalities. In this podcast, Dr. Alan Barsky discusses recent updates and enhancements that were made to the practice standards involving the use of technology to help social workers manage risks and maximize benefits. Dr. Barsky highlights how the standards can provide guidance when utilizing technology in interventions, and in developing policies involving confidentiality and service delivery. He describes current disparities in technology access, as well as how social workers can reduce these disparities through conversations with the community. Dr. Barsky concludes by emphasizing how technology and media Can have both positive and negative implications and he encourages listeners to review the standards because they can provide a valuable framework to address benefits challenges and risks involving the use of technology dr alan barsky is a professor with the phyllis and harvey sandler school of social work at florida atlantic university where he teaches ethics conflict resolution, addictions, and generalist social work. Dr. Barsky chaired the NASW's Code of Ethics Review Task Force and was a member of the National Task Force on Practice Standards for Social Work and Technology. He was interviewed in November 2017 by Karen Zagoda, who is a Ph.D. student in public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello,
2: my name is Karen Zagoda, and I am a PhD student in public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I am actually a guest interviewer today for the In Social Work podcast. I've participated in a couple of other In Social Work podcasts because of my work with social work and technology. A note for listeners, you may hear me drop my eyes a lot. I do live in Boston. I've lived in Boston for nearly 20 years. My goal will be to reduce that a little bit, although it's a great trick to pull out at Patty's. Um, I'd like to introduce Alan Barsky.
3: Good day. My name is Alan Barsky, and I am a professor at the Phyllis and Harvey Sandler School of Social Work in Boca Raton at Florida Atlantic University. I was also on the task force that developed the practice standards on technology and social work practice. I'm not representing any of these organizations today, but just speaking on my own behalf.
2: Fantastic. So, Alan, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what was that National Task Force on Social Work and Technology? How did you get involved?
3: Thank you. The task force was a combined task force of the four largest social work organizations in the United States. And it's the first time that these four organizations actually got together to develop practice standards or any sorts of policies. So it's the National Association of Social Workers, the Association of Social Work Boards, the Council on Social Work Education, and the Clinical Social Work Association. And so each of the organizations uh, appointed people to participate in this task force. And the idea was that we wanted to get really broad support and buy-in and input from as many types of social work organizations. There were practice standards that the NASW and ASWB created in uh, 2005 on technology and social work. And there was a decision among all of the organizations that those standards were very dated. Now, I have been participating on the National Ethics Committee of NASW since 2007, and in handling cases and also in speaking to various mental health and social work organizations around the country, it was really obvious that there were some challenges in the way that people were using technology and different types of practice. So when this opportunity came up and I was invited to participate, I thought this would be a great way to help provide social workers with more guidance on what types of technology are available what are some of the positive uses of technology, and what are some considerations that social workers should look at when they're trying to use new technology or new applications of technology.
2: Now, that I think is a really interesting point. So how do you actually view the role of technology in what we're sort of calling modern social work practice?
3: You know, it's funny that uh, we sometimes think of technology as new. So I think since the beginning of social work, we've actually had some forms of technology. Picking up a pen and putting it on paper and writing notes is a form of technology. Speaking on the phone is making use of a form of technology. You could even argue that to play therapy and art therapy were using different types of technology. So I don't think that technology itself is new, but uh, there's certainly been an explosion of different types of technology. And it's not really a question anymore of should social workers use technology, but rather mm-hmm. how do we blend? technology in with various forms of social work practice. So sometimes it's used to enhance communication. Sometimes it's used to store, gather, and uh, access data. Sometimes it's the technology is actually part of the intervention itself. So I think we need to look at uh, technology in very broad terms, look at all the potential benefits and uses that it can have in various aspects of practice.
2: I think those are excellent points. You sort of remind me of some fears that some folks had initially had when one of our more recent disruptive technologies, smartphones were introduced and people were scared that everyone was going to be looking into their phones all the time. And then you can look back 100 years ago and see those photos of people holding up newspapers on a subway and nobody's talking to each other. They're all looking at the newspaper. So at that time, that newspaper was that disruptive technology and we weren't talking to other people except Usually on our phones now we're actually using those devices mostly to talk to other people, which I think is kind of fascinating.
3: Absolutely. And there's ways that we can make use of our cell phones in ways that are gonna be, you know, more beneficial and reduce the risks, and there's ways that we could, you know, increase the risks. So, you know, the exactly. advent of cell phones may have meant that, you know, we've got the mobility and we can speak anywhere at any time to anyone. But in terms of confidentiality, maybe we need to look around and even have our clients look around. Is this a good place for me to be having this conversation?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So it has been roughly, I believe, about 10 years since the first technology standards were introduced by NASW. What do you see as some of the biggest changes to the standards in this round?
3: So one of the things that we've done this time around is I think we've gone into greater depth. You'll see that there are standards and then interpretations of standards. And in the prior one, that just had the standards themselves, but not the interpretations. The Interpretations allowed us to go into greater depth, and it's really important for people to look at the language that's used. So a lot of times when there is a particular issue raised, say it's confidentiality or informed consent or boundary issues, we don't prescribe to people what they should do, how they should act, but it asks people to be aware of certain issues and when they're using their discretion to be concerned and be aware about both the benefits and the uh, risks in using technology in different ways. So that's one piece that's different. Another piece that's different is just the way that it's divided out into four areas. So one area on technology and social work education really wasn't present in the 2005 standards. The other areas that we've peeled out is, there's the first section is on providing information to the public. Well, back in 2005 and a few years prior when the practice standards were being developed, we didn't have or we were just at the beginning of having Facebook and various other forms of online social media. And so now just the explosion of the use and the uh, adaptations of use in professional purposes, it required a lot of consideration about you know what are some of the things that could provide social workers uh, with guidance and also to provide guidance to their agencies and their clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see that there's a number of places in the code or in the practice standards where we're actually – encouraging social workers to create policies around certain issues and social workers if they're working in large organizations they can't develop those policies alone so they need to bring these standards to their colleagues and their agencies to think about well what would a good social media policy be in this circumstance or Mm -hmm. if there's some sort of disruption in services how can we as as an organization not just me as a professional be Mm -hmm. certain that we have a backup plan
2: that is so insightful. It's really helpful to hear you sort of explain that and sort of add a little bit of depth to that. One of the things that you sort of talked about was how we're trying to use these standards now to build awareness of some of the situations that some of these newer technologies may provide. So, for example, you brought up a social worker talking to a client on their cell phone in a crowded area. That That is something that we'll need to be aware of. Can you talk about some of the most important areas of guidance for social workers who are using technology and social work with, say, individuals, families, and groups.
3: The second part of the standards has two sections. One is specifically for interventions on micro-level individuals, families, and groups, or micro and mezzo, and then another section that's related more to the macro. One of the areas that I think is helpful for people to look at is in terms of informed consent. Mm -hmm. So historically, when we provide informed consent with our clients, we have a discussion about the types of services that we're providing. And so if I were providing addictions counselling, I might talk about what's the difference between cognitive behavioural approach, a solution-focused approach, moderate use approach versus an abstinence approach. And we talk about the nature of the services, what are the advantages, what are the disadvantages, risks of each of them, and we'd allow the client to have some choice. Now, in addition to the specific model of intervention, if we're using technology to uh, help facilitate the uh, communication process or maybe use technology as actually part of the intervention process, we should involve informed consent as well. And I don't know that some agencies have really thought that out. I've... Worked with the, a number of agencies, or my students have in the field, where they've gone away from in-person meetings strictly to use of video conferencing or online technologies, and so they're not really giving clients a choice anymore. So, if an agency is not going to provide that sort of choice within their agency anymore, they should at least do some sort of assessment of you know what type of services are best for a particular client, and it may actually be that the use of technology is superior to in-person, but we. Should should still be attentive to both the benefits and the risks of in-person versus technology and give people choices and try to facilitate uh, access to services if we're not providing them in our own practices.
2: I think what you say is really interesting. I think of living here in Boston where the right time of day, if you're trying to drive seven miles, it can take you an hour, an hour and a half. So I think sometimes I think of technology in terms of wow, wouldn't that make my life so much better to cut out this commuting? And then I think about the implications, as you say, for education or for field practice, where, you know, some of our students, some of our programs are located in these very rural areas, or we even have some students who may be active duty military members, and they can still participate in different sessions and social work practice, either as a student or as someone who needs those services as a client, wherever they're at, as long as they do have that cell phone connection. And it's kind of I think an amazing time to be in social work, even though I think we're still sorting some of these things out. I think some of those possibilities to extend our practice and really help people in a new way can be really fantastic.
3: Absolutely. We believe in access to services and technology can be wonderful in terms of access to services. So you've mentioned continuity of services when people move to different locations and also think of access to services uh, for people with disabilities. And so there's a lot of technology that can help people who are blind, people who are deaf, people who have various sorts of physical impairments or even psychological impairments. So think of the client who has social anxiety and would find it difficult to travel to an office for in-person treatment, but would be able to have treatment at home and eventually work towards being able to go out into the community more.
2: I'm really excited to see how social workers sort of take this and run with this in the future. To that extent, I wonder, we talked a little bit about sort of micro-social work practice. Can you discuss a little bit maybe some of the most important implications of these standards for macro-practice, some of the practice you're doing with there are communities or policy or advocacy, different settings like that.
3: So let me actually pick out a particular standard, 2.01. So part two, all the two point whatevers, those are the ones that are particular to intervention. And this one talks about the appropriate boundaries. So the basic standard is social work who work with communities and organizations shall maintain appropriate boundaries when they use technology. Well, that's really a duplication or uh, maybe a little bit of an addition of what's already in the code of ethics, that we need to have appropriate boundaries in our work one thing that the code of ethics doesn't do is it doesn't really distinguish what's an appropriate boundary in clinical social work versus community or macro social work. So the interpretation gives some guidance on those types of issues. And one of the I'm picking out, I think, a fairly controversial area is what sort of guidance do we give social workers in terms of how they become involved in online advocacy, online community organization, online macro work in a way that gives them freedom of expression, allows them to pursue whatever causes that they think are appropriate, but also makes sure that they're attentive to what are core social work uh, principles and values are. And so just in terms of you know the affiliations that we have, we should be aware that once we start to communicate with groups that are organized around a particular political party or around a particular type of political cause, that's going to affect how clients and future clients may perceive us and be able to work with us. So if we're doing community organization, We may be participating in online communities, in uh, blogs and other types of technology with a broad range of people from the community. What should we keep as part of our professional life? What should we try to keep separate as part of our personal life? And the types of boundaries that we have in community work may have those types of areas blurred. I do a lot of advocacy with the LGBT community. I'm not going to hide that, but I really need to be aware of the types of groups that I associate with is going to have an impact on uh, how people perceive me and want to work with me in the future.
2: And what what I'm guessing you may discover, you may have already discovered, is that people will probably start to seek you out more because in some ways you are vocal about that particular area of expertise. There are going to be clients who are going to be like, you know what, I just really want someone with that experience or this background or this orientation or this understanding of some of the things that I may be going through. And that may actually become, I don't want to say a selling point, but it may become very attractive to certain clients who are really looking for that. When I work with students, particularly undergraduate social work students on these issues, one of the first things I do is I actually have them watch some videos from the show Ellen. And she does a great job of saying this in 10 minutes for me, of showing, you know, some Facebook posts and social media posts from some of her staff members. And, you know, having students spend 10 minutes watching a video like that forces them to be like, okay, what exactly am I putting out there in the world? What could someone find? And they go home and they cleanse all their profiles from all their social media a little bit to say, what it is that they want people to be finding out about them. And that's one thing that I tend to encourage with students as well. What are the things you want clients to learn about you? Do you want them to understand that you bring a certain perspective, a certain value of expertise, things like that, to your practice? And the one guideline I've always told them is, you know, if you want to see something that you say printed in the New York Times or you want your family to read it, that's a strong sense that this is something that you are passionate about. And there's a way to talk about that in a way that I think is proactive. For example, if there's an issue you care about, you're able to share the research that you think is really important. Or if you find some really good examples that other people can learn from, there's a way to sort of develop this public expertise in a scope which wasn't really possible 10 years ago, which I think presents some challenges, but is also a really exciting opportunity, especially once we figure that out a little bit more
3: absolutely so the types of you know connections that we can make not just with people within our own communities but people in uh, rural and remote communities people uh, overseas you know again just with lgbt communities you know some people in some countries just may not have access to the various types of supports that uh, we may have here so connecting them or having giving them the opportunity to see who they could be connected to can be a real advantage at the same time people need to be aware of that the context in that other country is different. So that a person say in Russia, who starts connecting with LGBT organizations within their country or, or internationally, Could be putting themselves at risk because there are laws that criminalize that type of activity. Part of it is really informed consent not just with clinical clients but with community uh, clients. We could get all excited about the types of blogs and videos that we're posting on YouTube or whatever. They can have you know ramifications for people so if you're doing videos then you're going to be very identifiable not just by name but also by face and is that something that you want to carry with you. Once it's out there it's out there and you may not be able to control who uses it uh, well into the future so again we may be responsible with working with various groups for helping people to make truly informed decisions.
2: Exactly there is additional layer of responsibility. I think one of the standards talks about how the things that we create you know, we can't control how long they last or who gets to use them. Like that was even true with some of the research that we might do in social work. And I think sometimes with the ease of technology, it's very easy to sit down and do a status update. I think it's important to really be cognizant of some of the responsibilities that that voice has. Like, yes, you have a voice that you can actualize 24-7 and it can reach a global audience. What are the ways in which we're using that voice to the best of our ethical ability to make sure that you know, the people in the communities we care about are still comfortable and
1: protected.
3: You know, we have to take reasonable steps to look at what's out there, you know, that's put in our voice or is put in the voice of our agencies or social work. We can't control everything that's out there. And right. we also know in these days of, you know, fake news and photoshops and all of these things, people could take our videos and our research and our blogs right. out of context and use them for different purposes. So, you know, we can't be responsible for everything, but there may be ways that we can try to be aware of those issues, ask for corrections, try to make sure. Right. Uh, that the information that we do put out there is as accurate as possible and because we've got some politicians and because we have some other advocates out there who are saying well we can say you know anything we want about anything and it doesn't matter if we're telling the truth or lying because you know we just want to push our cause. As social workers, I think we need to put ourselves to a higher standard. And yes, the cause is important. The end is important. But we want to make sure that we act with integrity, that we will be as honest and accurate as we can. And we'll pursue our causes hard, but let's do it with integrity.
2: Integrity. And it also sounds like some transparency as well, which I think is super important. These are the steps that we have taken to make sure that we have the best possible outcomes.
3: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
2: So to that end... What disparities do you still see remaining regarding technology access, adoption, application?
3: So one thing we like to do in social work is build on strengths. So one of the things that's actually happened is more and more people have access to technology than in the past. It used Mm -hmm. to be that technology was uh, not something that everyone could have if you were talking about, say, computers. Not everybody had their own computer. These days, more and more people have an iPhone or a uh, different type of smartphone, and they're very powerful devices, and it gives people uh, voice, it gives people the power of uh, access to information, it gives people the power to promote whatever their concerns are, advocate for themselves with agencies, etc., so... In some ways, the technological divide hasn't gotten worse, in other ways it has. So we need, as social workers, I think as part of our assessment process, we're very good at doing comprehensive biopsychosocial evaluations with clients. One of the things that we should be looking at is relationships with technology so do the people that we're serving have access to technology not just ownership of devices but can they afford to purchase the uh, services or the licenses to the services that they need how adept are they at making use of the different types of technology mm-hmm. and we sometimes make some assumptions about well you know younger people they're very adept at it and older people not so much. I think we have to be careful with that. There's many people who are elderly who have embraced various forms of technology, feel very comfortable with it and no major problems and there's also people at the younger end of the age scale who may not have access to technology or may not be as comfortable with it. So part of the dealing with disparities is working with clients on a a case-by-case basis. The other thing that I think we don't often talk about in terms of disparities is disparities between agencies. Some agencies are well equipped with technology, Others, not so much. And I work with the BSW and MSW students, some of whom are asked to bring their own technology to work, not just their cell phones, but also their computers. And I think it's really not a great uh, model for agencies to be saying to people, you know, we're going to rely on your private technology and your private accounts.
2: That has a lot of issues that could be brought up very easily. But I think it's really interesting what you say there in terms of the differences between different agencies. I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot.
3: I think partly it depends on the type of social work practice that you're doing. It's Mm -hmm. still very possible to have low-tech practice and do really effective work. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that we need everybody to have the same degree of tech uh, knowledge and the same degree of wanting to do the most cutting edge type of work. So I think there's always gonna be a place for in-person social work without a lot of technology. And I've gone around you know, the country talking to groups and a lot of people in private practice, they don't necessarily see the benefit of using these different types of technology. So it may be that it's uh, some generational issues, it may be that uh, it depends on uh, need in some case, it may depend on access to different types of resources. That said, we've got some social workers who are very creative very forward thinking they're willing to take uh, some risks and they're willing to you know see what works and uh, what doesn't work so i think the creativity within the field is fantastic i really encourage social workers to work with computer scientists it people engineering people if you look at the a lot of the apps that are being developed for people with uh, psychosocial issues or to improve their psychosocial well-being A lot of it is being built uh, by people with tech backgrounds and with business backgrounds, not necessarily by people with mental health and social work backgrounds. So I see real opportunities to work together and we haven't always talked about interprofessional in terms of social workers working with business and tech folks.
2: Oh, I think that's so fascinating. That's such a great area to go into. To that end, how else do you see social workers should be continuing to work to reduce some of these disparities?
3: I think going back to the client, sometimes let's look at our client as communities. So rather than we say, okay, this is how we need to approach this uh, disparity. Why don't we work with the communities and uh, help them decide what would be most advantageous for them? So here in Florida, we had, you know, hurricanes uh, recently. And one of the major internet providers just said, we're going to make the whole state a hotspot. And so any of your you know access to your own cell phones or computers or whatever we're going to create a hotspot and we're going to have places where people can go and you'll be able to find out you know how your friends are doing or you'll be able to tell people that you're okay or you're in need or whatever well why can't we do that with communities and say okay what is it that you need what are some of the concerns that you have and they may not want a hotspot some people may be concerned that you know they're getting some sort of radiation or something that's negative so let's work with the populations and them Look at what types of technology they need access to and what would be the best way to help them to access it.
2: For example, I can throw out a local example. My neighborhood that I live in in Boston has an extremely active Facebook page. So if I want to know, you know, what's going on in my neighborhood, I know that I have to go to that Facebook. That is the technology that they are comfortable with. That is how they choose to interact with one another.
3: Great example. And if you're working with younger kids, they'll say, oh, Facebook is so 2014. <laughs> yes. Why are you on Snapchat or whatever the latest uh, type of program is?
2: Yes, there's always new things, although you'd be surprised. You, know, you can see the older adult walking around with their Apple Watch paying with Apple Pay, and it's just like, you know what? Let's not have those stereotypes.
3: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: So is there anything else that you want to make sure that some folks who will be listening to this, any takeaways you want them to have, any sort of things that maybe we hadn't talked about that you wanted to bring up or make sure to highlight at this point?
3: I think one of the things social workers can look at is uh, having a, a social media policy or an electronic or even just all types of communication type of policy. So if you're working with clients on a, say, weekly basis, but they want to communicate with you in between sessions, What would be the expectation for how they can communicate with you and what would be the expectation in terms of how quickly you would respond to them? And Mm -hmm. so in this day and age, you know, people think that if I email or text, that's appropriate and that I should be able to expect a response within, you know, minutes, if not within 24 hours. Well, some of us may want to provide that, some of us may not want to provide it, or we need to consider some of the laws like HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which may say that you know, certain types of communication have to have a higher level of protection around confidentiality. So letting clients know that it's okay maybe to schedule appointments online through uh, text messaging, but it's not really okay to go into the depth of what the particular issues are. Or making sure that people know what uh, emergency services are available. Or if we're working across state lines, what are some of the interjurisdictional issues? What do I have to know in terms of the laws where I'm located? What do I have to know in terms of where the clients are located? And we sometimes assume that the laws that govern social work or child protection or adult guardianship are the same across states, but there's really some considerable differences. And so now that we've opened up the possibility to provide remote services around the globe, we need to help educate people who are providing those services to know not just the laws, but also cultural competence issues. So I may be able to provide services to a person in Uganda, but do I know enough about the cultural context to do that in a culturally competent manner?
2: And it might even make sense to have that conversation with that client, you know, I'm not 100% sure about all the things I should be aware of in your culture. Can you help me learn or direct me to resources to the extent that you're able?
3: Right. So your 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 discussion goes to the concept of cultural humility, not going in thinking that we know everything, but how do we find out? So the client is a great source of information, but we also need to know what our limits are around cultural competence and when it's more appropriate right. to refer people to somebody else. So I don't know that you know people are going to pick up our technology standards and memorize them, but hopefully they're a resource that people can pick up and look at and maybe they can apply. And even if they don't like them, you know, critique them and write articles and put the information out there and participate in uh, discussions with people. So one of the things that I think has been great about the technology standards is that so many people have been discussing them. We have standards on various types of practice and, you know, whether it's uh, child welfare, end-of-life decision-making, nursing homes, uh, there's one on cultural competence. And many social workers don't know about them or don't really access them. So I really would encourage people mm-hmm. to take a look at the various practice standards, especially those that are most pertinent to the type of work that you're doing and engage people in these discussions. Mm-hmm. For those people who like to provide uh, continuing education programs, you know, this is a, a good source of material for that as well.
2: Oh, that's an excellent point. And like you say, I think it is a fantastic consideration for continuing conversation because we're gonna bring those new expertise Fantastic. Anything else that you would like to share today with the listeners of the podcast?
3: Just want to you know encourage people to check out the uh, standards and also to look at the uh, revisions to the NASW Code of Ethics. So the new code is enforceable or effective as of January first, and there are a number of changes to the code that uh, pertain particularly to technology. But there's a couple of others mm-hmm. that pertain to uh, some other areas of practice. The general code is the same. We've got the same values and principles and same sections, but uh, Mm -hmm. there are 19 new additions and uh, 19 other amendments.
2: I look forward to reading those as well.
3: All right. Well, I appreciate your conducting this interview and appreciate the opportunity to share some of the insights on the technology standards.
2: Thank you, Alan. This has been so helpful for me. I'm sure you've helped thousands of other social workers as well.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Alan Barsky's discussion on practice standards in social work and technology. I'm Luann Beck. Please join us again at in social Work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on the ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center.
2: You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.